anything that you feel like you don't have enough of, you feel like you don't have enough money or enough time or enough of something, that scarcity mentality throws your brain into a threat mode. And right now we're all suffering from this uh, scarcity mentality around certainty about the future. Every plan we've made for the future has exploded. And there's, the, the, we feel a scarcity there. The human, the human brain evolved to really pay attention to scarcity. Because if you didn't have enough water, you would die. If you were without other people, you would die. It's an evolutionary thing to keep us alive. But a hyper-focus on scarcity doesn't work in the same way. It doesn't help us in the same way as it did 10,000 years ago or more. So the practice of gratitude can really help our brains shift out of scarcity towards the perception of abundance. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to have a full plate and empty life? Hello boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, this is Nishant and welcome to the Nishant Girl Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Today's guest is Kristen Carter. Kristen is an author, speaker and coach. Her books include The New Adolescence, Raising Happy and Successful Teens in an Age of Anxiety and Distraction, The Sweet Spot, How to Accomplish More by Doing Less, and Raising Happiness, 10 Simple Steps for More Joyful Kids and Happier Parents. Kristen is a sociologist and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. She draws on the latest scientific research in psychology, sociology, and neuroscience to help her clients lead their most meaningful, joyful, and productive lives. She lives with her husband, four teenagers, and dog Buster in California. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kristen. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, and I'm going to have this wonderful conversation with you regarding happiness and much more. I'm sure that our listeners will learn so many things about elevating our happiness in our life. So I was thinking if you could start with your children, how would your children describe what you do for a living? <laughs> Funny that you should ask. I've got four of them. They are 19, 20. Well, actually, they're 17, 18, 19 and 20 right now. And three of them are here with me. You know, school is a little upside down. So it's, it's been uh, fun having them home more uh, for me and not at all fun for them, I think, because they're all at the age where they just want to be away from home right now. And I'm a sociologist and a senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. I'm an author and a writer and a coach. And I used to be a speaker <laughs> before the pandemic. And I, I am actually still doing some um, speaking. But I study the sociology of happiness and well-being. And I'm doing a lot of work right now about uncertainty and helping people cope with uncertainty as that relates to what we're all going through these days and to our well-being. How are you dealing with uncertainty in your personal life these days? <laughs> well, I have learned a lot about uncertainty over the years. I kind of feel like I've been in training for my whole career for this. So one of the things, well, there's a couple of important things to know about uncertainty. The first thing is that the human brain perceives ambiguity about the future or un uncertainty as a threat. And so it's very, very stressful for us. There's research that shows that people experience more physiological stress just being uncertain about their job, being unsure whether or not they're going to lose their job than after they actually lose their job. So our drive to create control and certainty related to the future to make the future predictable is a primary drive, same as a drive towards food or sex or any of the other primary survival type drives. So that's the first thing to know. The second thing to know is that it's better not to create certainty 
<laughs> like that I can say like uncertainty is a real threat. When we're living through times of incredible uncertainty, the best plan is actually not to try and control things, not to try and create certainty in the future because it doesn't work. And, and because the opposite of uncertainty isn't actually certainty, it's presence. Could you give us an example from your life when you were trying to control things and it didn't work out? <laughs> yes, I can. I could give you any number of examples. Well, so the first thing is that, right, like we're in close quarters here, lots of kids. We, had, we actually had over the summer an international student that was living with us and a 20-something neighbor that was living with us. Like there's just a lot of people in my household. And so, and so I, I just basically went through a phase where I was trying to control everyone, right? Like I was literally trying to control where people put things. Like I organized the pantry and then became like obsessively controlling about where people put things away to not like mess everything up. Like the way that I deal with chaos is through organization and organization works fine. It's when you try and control other people that everything backfires. Things get more chaotic when people feel forced to do things your way. Mm -hmm. So, but I was just trying to create predictability for myself, right? I want to be able to, you know, find the rice when I need the rice. <laughs> and, you know, so that was an example of me going for trying to create certainty and predictability in, in a way that harmed my relationships. Let's just put it that way. Yes. And this is very common human behavior. We all want to take control on things some, most of the time. So yeah. What, what would be those practices to really cultivate letting go of things that we can control in our life, Kristen? Yeah. So the first thing is to just really pay attention to what's actually happening in the present. So if the opposite of uncertainty is not certainty, but presence, then paying attention to what's happening right now in our immediate environment and in our bodies is a way to um, calm our nervous system and to f ironically feel more grounded. So every time I wash my hands, for example, now that we're so much more aware of washing our hands. So throughout the day, every time I wash my hands, I'll just check in with myself. And I kind of ask myself, I'm like, all right, so how are you feeling? Right? So I'm feeling the water running on my hands, but I'm also checking in with me about my emotions. Because when, we're, when we have a lot of stressors in our environment, and you know emotional reactions that are to those stressors if we try and suppress our emotions we we tend to become very unfocused it actually measurably affects our cognitive ability and our ability to concentrate so just using that sort of a dozen times a day checking in what is it that i'm feeling just trying to label my emotions can it's a really solid science-based practice for calming the nervous system, feeling more grounded that enables us to then go about the day. You know, I think a lot of times we don't check in with our emotions when we're in these very emotionally difficult circumstances because we're afraid that the sadness will just take over. And, you know, occasionally, you know, Friday I had one of those days where I was like, wow, I just need to sort of like lay down and cry for a second, right? That does happen during these difficult times. But for the most part, a dozen times a day, I can just touch in to a sense of sadness or frustration or whatever other challenging emotion. And it might be, there's positive emotions that come up too, right? And the, I, we don't need to worry that the negative emotions are going to take over our lives. Would you mind talking a little bit about what happened on Friday? Yeah, I was really, really trying so hard to focus on something that I had not been, been able to finish all week. And, I, and so like my frustration was, my frustration level was really high. 
And, and so I basically did a complete shutdown where I sent a text to everyone in my household. I'm going on do not disturb. The only person who can interrupt me during this was my son because he needed help with something related to the college thing. And so I just needed, you know, like he basically could break through my texts. And so I'm focusing and he broke through with Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Mm. And I just couldn't, I did not, I was not able to like, I tried to just suppress it, right? Like be like, okay, I'm going to put that news on hold for another hour and finish what I'm going to do. And then I just couldn't, you know, I just, I just couldn't do it. So I just had to like, I literally like laid my head down on my desk and cried. Thanks for being very open, Kristen. How do you set these boundaries with your kids and your loved ones? Setting boundaries are difficult in our lives. And what you're saying is clear, healthy boundaries. Yeah, it's hard, right? And it's probably the most important thing. Like this is the thing that I work the most with um, my coaching clients on of all sorts. I have such a wide range of coaching clients from, you know, executives to stay-at-home parents. And no matter who you are, I, in my experience, most people need practice setting boundaries and setting them in a way that doesn't alienate other people. Some people are really good boundary setters, but they need help doing it in a way that doesn't push others away. And other people just can't, can't keep the boundaries. So the, the important practice is to identify what you need and, and then expect to fill the need yourself right? Not expect other people to hold the boundary for you. They won't. And in living in tight quarters in families, you know, other people get in habits with us. We get in patterns of behavior with other people. And, and so we can expect that we will need to set boundaries again and again and again and again. And this is the practice, right? Eventually people get into new habits. It does happen, but it's not an instant thing. It's kind of iterative. So we have to, you know, be really, really clear what we need. And then we need to, you know, sort of set the boundary and set the boundary and set it again and again and again, especially when the boundary doesn't appear to serve other people in the way that our lack of boundaries did. You know, a lot of people will want us to change back to the person that was so much more immediately helpful. But, you know, I found in my family and I I see, I've seen this again and again with my clients that when our irritability goes down and our patience goes up, people become, can all, the whole family can relax into the boundaries, right? That when we stay in integrity to ourselves and we keep ourselves grounded and balanced, the, the household runs smoother. Our teams at work run smoother. Nobody likes to have somebody who's irritated with them. And the boundary settings really helps entire organizations or, you know, and by organization, I sometimes just mean the family, the, helps them run more smoothly and more harmoniously. Kristen, how do you stay grounded in, in conflict? And you have mentioned about being grounded a couple of times. Is it any kind of a mindfulness? Yeah, I'm a meditator <laughs> and an exerciser. I do. Well, you know, I will say just to, to humanize this, like that I had great routines before the pandemic. And then all of my routines just like completely fell apart so hard and fast with the initial lockdown And now here we are, you know, six or seven months later, and I've rebuilt all of my routines completely from scratch. The things, the the routines that keep me grounded are look very different now than they did beforehand. And I think that this is important. Now it's exercise and I, I'm a, big proponent of really like moving your body six or seven days a week. I try and do aerobic exercise as often as I can, but at least three times a week because, because that really helps our bodies recover from stress. I do yoga two or three times a week and I meditate once or twice a day. 
I do transcendental meditation. So those are my practices. I also get eight hours of sleep. Like I, I'm really serious about my sleep. My whole family thinks I'm ridiculous, but, but I, I can't, I'm really sensitive and really emotional and I can't function in these difficult circumstances. I can't continue to be productive and like not cry every day if I'm underslept. I'm a little bit like a toddler. And the thing is that I know I've seen the research. Most people are actually like me. They just aren't quite as emotional, right? And But in terms of overall functioning, most people need seven to nine hours of sleep. Most adults need seven to nine hours of sleep at night. So, so that's how I stay grounded. You have a meditation practice, you have movement exercises, and you sleep eight hours. How do you balance your life? You are a super mom. You are doing so many things. I know, and I'm working full-time. You know, I just have like my, my you know, sleep and, and yoga and exercise and meditation. These are the foundation for me. Like those are the big things that I, that I always do first. And so a lot of that will happen first thing, literally happen first thing in the morning, right? Like I wake up and I meditate and then I exercise. So I, I will get it in first thing. So what time do you wake up in the morning? Five. Five. It's too early for people, right? <laughs> so maybe 5.30. Well, I wake up at five and then I'll meditate until 5.30. So that's sort of like, I, I, don't, I literally just sit up in bed. So it, it kind of, that, that first meditation sort of blends into that. But that's why my family thinks I'm so ridiculous because I really am like getting ready for bed at like eight o'clock. And I like to read for an hour before bed. And I like, I will go to sleep at nine. So when you wake up in the morning, how many minutes do you spend in your meditation? 20 minutes. Is it any kind of guided meditation or what kind of meditation is that? No, I do transcendental meditation. So I was trained in transcendental meditation as a teenager and I've tried every kind of meditation that there is. And I, the reason that I always come back to TM is that it's it's a real you know, for high achievers, I think it's good because there's like, there's an effortlessness about it. The mantra just sort of helps me not try, you know, I'm always having to try not to try at these things. And, and for me, meditation is an important element of it is the effortlessness of it, that it's like, I don't, I'm not pushing myself to focus more. So that for me is what works the best. Do you have a favorite mantra? I do. In Transcendental Meditation, they give you a mantra that is a secret, so I'm not going to tell you. But everybody gets Got their, it. Own, their personality. And you mentioned that you go to bed at 9.30 and you, you, start, you start getting ready to go to bed at 8 o'clock and then you read. So what, yeah. what, what kind of books do you prefer to read before going to bed? Oh my gosh, I am all over the place. So I I love I I probably read 3 books a week, but I will listen to I like to listen to fiction while while I'm out um walking and cleaning up the kitchen and things like that. And then in the morning I like to read nonfiction that's related to whatever I'm working on that's more like research. And so then at night it's like if there's something from the day that I just really want to get back to, or if there's just sort of like a, I, health for me is kind of a habit, is kind of a hobby. And so like, I read lots of books about health and food and it sounds so boring. I know I sound really boring, but I, I love books about nutrition and stuff like that. I'm a bit, I read a wide range of things. Could you recommend some of the books that have inspired you the most in your life? Oh, some of the books that have inspired me the most in my life. A lot of spiritual um, books. I, you know, I think about like Byron Katie's Loving What Is has influenced me for many, many years. I for a long time, worked with Martha Beck and her books. She's a coach. 
And also she's trained as a sociologist. So I relate to her and her books have really inspired me, but I, I'm just, you know, a big fan of reading fiction too, and using fiction in order to understand the world and empathize and release emotion. You know, I, I just finished a book called Circe by Madeline Miller and learned all about Greek mythology about that, but it was a, a novel that was really engrossing. I'm reading Sue Monk Kidd's new book, The Book of Longings, which is really delightful. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I, I really am a huge fan of reading novels that take place in times and eras that we don't live in now or are, have narrators that are from different walks of life. I'm curious to ask you that, is there anything that, or some of the things that you, you, you might have learned from fictional books and that literally you have copy pasted in your life, you have implemented that in your life to make it better? You know, I'm sure the answer is yes. I can't, I I think that the answer is yes, and it's not something I've done really consciously, right? So I I couldn't, I mean, certainly consciously from nonfiction, right? Like any book about habits, I've like copy and pasted elements of it to get into new habits or nutrition or whatever. But I think the fiction books, it happens on more of an unconscious Mm -hmm. level. It helps me understand like reading over the summer i read american dirt by janine cummings and which is a story of an immigrant and family and and it really changed my emotional understanding of what it's like to come to this country illegally from mexico right so i i knew a lot of things factually but i don't think that i had like really felt them so deeply and i know that book has been criticized but for me it really it really affected me emotionally and i think anytime something changes the way that you view the world which this book did it can it, it's also changing your behavior in unconscious ways Yes. Now I would like to shift some gears towards happiness. You talk and you talk a lot about happiness. You have so many books regarding happiness. So I'm wondering that everybody wants to be happy, but what do you think people find challenging to cultivate happiness? What's really missing? Well, I think that people really confuse happiness, which is a positive emotion and pleasure And the two things are really closely related, but they're not the same, right? So pleasure, meaning the, like the feeling that we get when we have a nice meal or we get a new cute pair of shoes or material possession of some kind, or or we have a glass of wine or something like that. That's pleasure. It activates the reward system in our brain. And that reward system triggers usually a nice big hit of dopamine, which and the the primary job of dopamine is related to motivation and it creates desire, it creates momentum. It leaves us with craving for more. And cr- the desire for more or a craving for whatever it was, you know, we're very familiar with this, that the pleasure of a meal doesn't last long before we want the next one, right? Yes. Or anything pleasurable, right? But that that craving or that desire for more, that's not happiness. Now, a positive emotion, an actual positive emotion, like gratitude or, you know, it could be contentment or passion or faith um, or a sense of awe or inspiration. These are all positive emotions. Compassion and love are probably our most powerful positive emotions. These these things may trigger a little bit of the reward system in the brain, but for the most part, their function physiologically is to reverse any any fight or flight response. So to re- to reduce stress, bring us back to normal, and are neutral. And 
And we experience those positive emotions in a different part of the brain that doesn't leave us wanting more. It leaves us with more, right? We can, can, you know, the, the more positive emotion that we can foster in ourselves, the, the longer it will last. It doesn't come and go in such a fleeting way. So I think that Western culture has become very obsessed with pursuing happiness And that pursuit of happiness is not really happiness. We're not really pursuing positive emotions like compassion or gratitude. We're pursuing pleasure and it's a mistake. How do you cultivate gratitude in your life? So I have a lot. We, as a family, we've practiced gratitude a lot since my kids were really little for the last 20 years. And, and so we have it kind of built into our family life right? So dinner time, we tend to talk about what we're grateful for. Bedtime, the kids' routines when they were younger was always, always included three good things. And they would tell me three good things. And I will still do this with my youngest kids, even though they're older teenagers now, occasionally. And a lot of the times the kids will text me good things as they're going (laughs) to sleep. But it's like, it's just like kind of built into the way our emotion, our emotional habits, right? Like the way we end the day. And you have a book on that, Raising Happiness, 10 Simple Steps for More Joyful Kids and Happier Parents. Yeah. Could you talk about some of the steps in brief? Sure. I mean, one of them is to practice gratitude, right? To think, to, to cultivate gratitude on a daily or weekly basis in your, in your own life and in your family life. And I feel like it's gotten so, you know, I wrote Raising Happiness a decade ago and it's gotten, it's, you know, a lot of people talk about practicing gratitude. And here's the thing, it works. If what you want is to be happy, even during really difficult times, it really helps your nervous system to set aside any sort of scarcity mentality that you might have going on. Any, anything that you feel like you don't have enough of, you feel like you don't have enough money or enough time or enough of something, right? That scarcity mentality throws your brain into a threat mode. And I mean, I think right now we're all suffering from this uh, scarcity mentality around certainty about the future, right? Every plan we've made for the future has exploded. And, and so, you know, there's the, the, we feel a scarcity there. The human, the human brain evolved to really pay attention to scarcity because if you didn't have enough water, you would die. If you were without other people, you would die, right? It's an evolutionary thing to keep us alive. But a hyper-focus on scarcity doesn't work in the same way. It doesn't help us in the same way as it did, you know, 10,000 years ago or more. So the practice of gratitude can really help our brains shift out of scarcity towards the perception of abundance. And it's not that we have to find abundance in the area um, where we feel like we have scarcity, right? We don't have to like feel like we don't have enough time and then foster gratitude for how much time we have, for example. The human brain isn't quite so literal in that way. Like we can be feeling a sense of scarcity and the the brain can Mm. perceive that as a threat. And then we can practice gratitude for, you know, all the connections we have with our children or for the, you know, the great book that we're reading or something that's going well in our lives that we feel that we have enough of and the brain can't hold both things. Then what can we do in that scenario? And the reason I'm asking is that we practice a lot of positive affirmations, but sometimes our self-image does not accept that. So I think, can you give me a more specific example? Because I this it's an interesting example. I'd love to work with you. If I am feeling negative or if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I know and my mind knows that I'm overwhelmed. But I keep repeating this mantra, I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm calm. So I feel that there is some sort of resistance, some conflict yeah. inside of me. I'm trying to project that I'm calm, but internally I'm not feeling calm. But mindfulness practice will say that you repeat positive affirmations. Those are great, but 
I feel those resistance sometimes. It's it's physiological. Yeah. yeah. So that's not a, that's actually not practicing gratitude, right? That's not at all what I'm talking about. So when you when we feel overwhelmed, that is the sort of scarcity mentality around not having enough time or resources to get done everything that you need to get done. So that's real. So we can be mindful of that. We can sort of look at the circumstances and accept that this is a really difficult time, right? Accept the circumstances and then touch into our feelings, how we're actually feeling about it, right? Like what does it feel like in your body to be overwhelmed and anxious and all of those things? And then after we've sort of leaned in and practiced acceptance of what is, you know, the circumstances and your feelings about the circumstances, then we can pretty effectively turn our attention to something else So we're not denying what is. We're not stuffing that down. We're not even trying to change what is. We set that aside. And then we look in our environment for things that are beautiful, that we appreciate, or things about other people that are also true. So we're not feeling overwhelmed and resisting the overwhelm and trying to change the overwhelm by telling ourselves we're calm right? Like that's, that's just what we resist persists. It's that's just going to amplify the anxiety doing that. So these, this is not a positive affirmation or positive thinking. This is really about looking around for something that we authentically feel grateful for. So, you know, I like, and it could be something as simple as, you know, a book that you're reading or the sweet way your dog looks at you, or right now we're all feeling grateful that we've had several days in a row here in Northern California in which we can go outside because the smoke has cleared a little bit where we are anyway. And so suddenly like clean air is something that we just feel profoundly grateful for, right? So that, that has nothing to do with my overwhelm, but it does shift blood flow in my brain so that I'm better resourced to deal with the difficult circumstances when I come back to them. Kristen, do you recommend writing about gratitude on a paper or just reminding yeah, I think anytime that we take the time to to write things down, it can really help our brain see the truth of them, right? And help us sort of savor or linger any positive linger with any positive emotions that might come up for it. So I personally am not a big gratitude journaler. I think it's because I write for a living and I just, you know need a break from it? Maybe. I don't know. One size definitely (laughs) doesn't fit all, right? It's important to to realize that one size doesn't um, necessarily fit all with the gratitude practices, but there is a lot of research that shows that writing things down and being very specific about not just what you're grateful for, but also what produced the things that you're grateful for, how, how you got to the place of gratitude can be very effective. I can at least verbalize right now what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for having this wonderful conversation with you, Kristen. <laughs> so what are the, some of the small things these days you are grateful for? Well, I just had an anniversary with my husband and he brought me flowers and he's, he doesn't do that very often. So I'm very, you know, I'm just like really grateful for the beautiful flowers I'm looking at right now and for the relationship that I have. This is, this has been a hard time, but as a family, I think we've grown stronger and I'm so grateful for that. Well, a big congratulations to you from all of us. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And I saw that you have a video presentation about full plate, empty life. <laughs> what is that? Oh, the video from Wisdom 2.0. Could you speak on that, please? Sure. I gave a talk for Wisdom 2.0 a few years ago, talking about how the busier we become, often the least less satisfied we become with our lives. And that busyness is just a, a construct that that can really trap us in a less fulfilling life than we can lead if we let go of some of the limiting beliefs that we have around productivity, basically. 
Could you give us an example about illuminating beliefs that you might have encountered with your clients or maybe in your personal life? Yeah, absolutely. Virtually everyone in Western culture seems to believe these days that busyness is a sign of success and importance and significance, mm-hmm. right? That that sort of the 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 time is money view of productivity and and even creativity sometimes is, you know, it's just a deeply, deeply limiting belief. Right, we know that busyness does is cannot be equated with actual productivity or actual significance or importance in the world. It's hard for us to believe that because we live in this world in which all the most important people seem to have the most to do. They're the ones who are always running late and busy, 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 busy. But when we look at the research around busyness, busyness is much more likely to create overwhelm and what researchers call cognitive overload than it is to actually you know productivity or importance in the world and so it's this sort of belief that if we aren't busy all the time then we aren't doing important work or that our lives aren't meaningful or aren't significant that it really holds us back the strange thing is we all want to be busy and it's a choice that we are making all the time so kristen you have a lot to do on your plate so how do you manage or choose your priorities that move your life forward? Or in other words, how do you manage things? Do you have any yeah, principles? Yeah, you know, I I am a big planner. And when, we're, when you're living through a an age of accelerated change, like we are right now, and I think we will for the rest of our lifetimes, you know, that thing, everything is changing at, at an exponential rate. Planning is sometimes futile in the sense that it's not about the plan, right? It's about the process of prioritization, of taking a step back and watching yourself for a moment, really evaluating what is it that we want to get done? What are the most important things? And so we've already talked about, like, I I build the foundation first with exercise and stillness practices. Otherwise, because this is really difficult, like I am really living in a, we are all really living in a stressful time. And, and so we need to have ways to reset our nervous system so that we can go into the day trying to accomplish what we want to accomplish, right? With a foundation of groundedness and just the ability to concentrate is is an issue for most people these days. So so I start with that and then I use my to-do list is actually in project planning software which enables me to really prioritize group like tasks together. My calendar is pretty well synced with my task list in terms of like when I'm seeing clients and when I have time blocked off to check my email, for example, I really only check my email once a day, I get all the way through it. You know, I'm just very, very strategic about what I need to do and when I'm going to do it. How many minutes do you spend on emails every day? Well, I never block off more than 50 minutes. So what I don't get to during that time, I don't always spend a full 50 minutes, but, but you know, if I don't get to it, I don't get to it. Now it's a little deceiving because sometimes like you have an email that could take you an hour to respond mm-hmm. to, right? Like, cause it's basically a to-do item, right? <laughs> so, so that I sort of, I just forward it right into Asana, into my to-do list and move it out of my inbox. Then it becomes something that when I'm doing my action items or like other tasks, then I'll spend more time on that. It's it's a little hard. I have to, I use Inbox When Ready with Gmail because it keeps me locked out of my inbox. I can't even see how many new emails I have because it's, I'm too tempted to check that way, but I do often have to go into my email to, you know, to do a task, right? I need to go into a folder and find an email that somebody sent with a form for X, Y, or Z or whatever it is, right? But but I keep myself locked out of my inbox because, because it's just a slippery slope. So there's a tremendous amount of 
what looks to people like discipline from the outside, but I actually tend to just use structural solutions, right? I don't get alerts that are going to distract me. I lock myself out of my inbox so that I don't compulsively check it. Cause it's always easier to check your email than to do your real work, (laughs) right? Especially if you're feeling stressed. So I don't rely on my own discipline. I, I don't have that kind of discipline. I need that. I need to reserve the discipline for my focused work and my writing and for, so that I can pay attention in my client sessions and everything. Like I, I reserve my willpower for, and my focus for those things. I don't, I don't waste it on trying to resist the temptation of email or social media. Well, I just, I don't have to resist the siren song of social media because I don't get any alerts. I only go into, you know, my social media at designated times a couple times a week. Right. And the same with email, the same with the news cycle right now. You know, every time my phone updates or my computers update, the alerts get reset back to sort of deliver news. And if that news gets delivered to me, right, even just in a headline, I cannot resist. I click, (laughs) right? And so I just turn off the alerts. This is so amazing that you have these great disciplines. But see, they're, they're not traditional disciplines, right? It's a structural thing that that I just set once. And I, unfortunately, you have to keep resetting them every time your computer updates or whatever, but still I know to do it. And, and then I don't have to use my discipline. Do you ever feel like you're missing something in your life when you don't check emails or social media at regular intervals? Well, I do check at regular intervals in the sense that like, I do see all of my email every day and, you know, yes. Like when for a while there I had, I had email on my phone and I was checking it kind of compulsively. Like every time I had a a minute to myself, I would check it. And, and then you kind of do go through withdrawal when you take it off. You're like, Oh, I wonder what's happening. I wonder whatever. But, but then that goes away. You kind of get used to it. People know that if they need to get a hold of you, they just call you and, or they just, they know you'll get to them that day. It's nothing, you know, nothing ends up being all that urgent. And you would think like with four kids, uh, there would be a lot of urgency in my <laughs> day, but the kids have figured it out when they can get my attention. And, <laughs> when, you know, I, and that it's so gratifying to have some space to do your actual work, right? Most yes. white collar workers get paid to think and to help other people. And that's so much more fulfilling than just checking your email or social media or the news. Well, I would love to tell our listeners that Kristen has a great book, Sweet Spot, that came in 2017. I I read that book and it has a huge impact in my life, how to structure small disciplines, how to structure our days, routines, and all those things. So thank you, Kristen, for that. Oh, you're welcome. I know. I feel like the sweet spot is... um, having a real resurgence right now as people, everybody's routines have changed, right? Because, you know, people are working from home and not seeing as many people. And, you know, even, even people who are still going into work, their routines have changed. If they have kids that are home or whatever, everything has changed. So my best advice is to overhaul your, your routines totally thoroughly so that it fits the life that you actually have, not the life you used to have or the life that you wish you had right now. (laughs) I think we're going to be in this for a while longer and settle in. It won't be wasted effort. If somebody is dealing with meltdown or emotional setbacks these days, do you have any advice to handle meltdown for some of those people? Well, yeah, first you're normal. Like everybody's like, who's not (laughs) dealing with emotional meltdowns? The people who are really suppressing emotion probably no, but so it's normal and there's, there's help out there, right? Find um, a therapist. Now you can work with therapists from all over the country because of teletherapy is really actually turning out to be a great blessing for for us. So if you find that you're just falling apart 
get help. You know, we need, human beings need emotional support and coaches and therapists can really provide skillful emotional support and coaches can really provide a path forward for us in terms of helping you create the structures that you need so that everything doesn't feel so overwhelming all the time. And what what kind of emotional support system do you have in your personal life? Oh, I, you know, I have, well, one of my closest friends is, is a type of therapist. So that is like a twofer. (laughs) (laughs) We like go for hikes together on the weekends and, and she's very emotionally supportive. And so I have friends, I've got a coach myself. I've got, you know, I I have a, a wide net of people that I can call on and it's important, I think, to have more than one person. You know, I'm seeing a lot of marriages that are really strained right now because we tend to just turn to our spouse as and expect them to be everything to us. Now there are like primary social life and <laughs> emotional support and practical support and everything. And, you know, the chances are that they're struggling too. And like no single human being can hold another one up. So to have to spread the wealth, so to speak. Yes. And now, could you talk about your new book, The New Adolescence, Raising Happy and Successful Teens? Yes, this book, Raising Happy and Successful Teens in an Age of Anxiety and Distraction, has uh, turned out to be rather prescient in these times. I wrote it before <laughs> the pandemic, but what, what we thought were anxious and distract, distracting times before, we're now seeing that oh, that was nothing. So it's, it's a book that is really, it's written for parents. It's not really written for the teens themselves, although I've gotten a lot of feedback that parents are like, you need to read the chapter on marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry to all the teens out there that are getting that, that kind of instruction. But it's the first part is really about the foundations of uh, like understanding adolescence and how to interact with your teenager. Right. So, and by it's not really teenager, it's really adolescence. So like preteens, you know, early, early middle school through college really. And just like through age 25. So it's a adolescence is a very long decade, but you know, I think it's really important for parents to understand how to influence a teenager or an adolescent, how to help them when they're struggling you know, what types of language really is supportive, how to get them to do the things you want them to do without having them reject it, right, outright. And then the book also has several chapters in it that are just sort of like talking points for a new era. So the sort of new sex talk, the drugs and alcohol talk, what what kids need to know about money and how parents influence it, those sorts of things. Have you had your children read this book? I've tried to get them to read it. (laughs) They've heard it all. They're such guinea pigs, right? Everything has been, so the book is all science-based, but it's all been road tested on them and then on my clients' kids. And it's very well tested (laughs) given that I've I've raised four teenagers. What do you specifically tell your children to be happy? What do I specifically tell them to be happy? You know what? I don't tell them to be happy. And they, I mean, they've been, I've been doing this work since before they were born. So, so they know what kind of work I do. My goal as a parent is just to model doing the things that we need to do to have a fulfilling life. And my expectation is not that we'll be happy all the time, but I do think that we can find meaning in even the most difficult circumstances. And that leads to a sense of fulfillment and well-being that is so much more important than any short-term happiness. Hmm. Speaking of meaning and purpose, what's your most critical need in upcoming months and years? My most critical need? Yes. Well, I think it's always social connection, right? For because I'm a human being, you know, I think that the if we look at the research for the last 150 years in every field on well-being, what we know is that um, social connection is the best predictor of a person's well-being and sometimes even health. 
So I like, I think that that's my highest priority and, and my greatest need. Well, Kristen, before I ask you my last question, I would love to ask you that what's the impact you want to leave on this world? Well, I would really like to see us restructure the way that we work. You know, I think that we are stuck in the factory model when much of our economy has changed so dramatically. And so all of the people out there that are working from home or that work from tech companies understand that everything has changed and that overwork is not going to get us anywhere, get us where we want to go anyway. So I'm always looking to help people. And I want, I really, really want people to lead joyful and productive and meaningful lives. And I hope that that is the impact that I love it. Love it. Where can our listeners find you online, Kristen? My website, christinecarter.com. That's it? christinecarter.com yeah i mean i read a column for greater good magazine and an advice column so if you need advice but you can find it all on christinecarter.com yes i will put all the links in the show notes i thought this would be my last question but my last question is last but not the least do you have any favorite quote because i found so many quotes on your instagram page so do you have a favorite quote <laughs> Do I have a favorite quote? You should yeah. just read. Those are my favorite quotes. I know I do. My Instagram and and believe it or not, I'm like constantly deleting quotes that I put up on Instagram because my kids criticize me for having having too many quotes up there. But you know, the one that I what I think about a lot is what the caterpillar calls the end, the world calls a butterfly. Like, I think that that is a nice quote to, for all of us to kind of hold in our hearts as we experience just as we live through this time of really accelerated change. Thank you so much, Kristen. It was so wonderful talking to you. My pleasure. It, It was my pleasure as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.